On today's episode, we have Colin Bevan, also most famously known as No Impact Man. He is an author and activist. He wrote his most famous book is called No Impact Man, and he's also the subject of a documentary of the same name. Um, this all came out, I think, in 2007, around then, uh, or maybe that was the year he spent living No Impact. It came out in the late 2000s, uh, the book and the documentary. They're both incredible. You should check them out. Um, I met Colin when I was 19. I was living in New York City and found his documentary first, and I reached out to him and his organization called the No Impact Project saying I wanted to be involved. And I ended up interning slash volunteering for them for two years, doing all different types of things. It was an incredible organization to be involved in. Uh, Their main function in the No Impact Project was getting universities and community organizations and individuals to do a No Impact Week, to spend one week living No Impact each day, they, we would institute a new uh, category of ways to live no impact. So food, transportation, electricity, and there would be communal conversation about what that was like and what people were getting out of it. And uh, uh, anyway, Colin was a, a wonderful person to meet at a pivotal place in my young life. And definitely working for him and his nonprofit really shaped me as an individual and my career and my future everything um so he's a really important figure to me and it was really we haven't seen each other in in years so it was very exciting to be able to get to go and interview him this was recorded in may while we were in america um and it was exciting that you guys got to meet um Colin also does, in addition to being an author and an activist, he does life coaching, mentoring type stuff. And um, he was the person who talked me through trying to decide between moving to Philadelphia or moving to Los Angeles. I had two very different job offers on the table. And ultimately, I decided to move to Philadelphia. And then I met Trevor. So really, Colin is to thank for us meeting and uh, many other things. Well, thank you, Colin. Thanks, Colin. <laughs> Appreciate it. Yes. Uh, Colin's most recent book is called How to Be Alive. And it, I in this interview, I refer to it as a convergence between the four-hour work week and Flourish, a book on positive psychology. It answers a lot of life's big questions and frames life's big questions big questions from the perspective of a happy environmentalist. Um, I really, really recommend it, How to Be Alive. It's 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 just a great read with practical tips, and uh, it's really well written, really fun to read. I would agree. It was kind of like a, a how to institute these environmental practices in a way that has a positive impact on your life and really well thought out arguments for why and how these things work. It's great. Yeah. So please check out all of Colin's work. Um, no Impact Man, How to Be Alive. I, the documentary No Impact Man is definitely on Amazon. Um, it's also worth checking out. The No Impact Project, the nonprofit of his that I work for, unfortunately, um, 
folded a year or two ago. Um, so you can no longer support that. But you should definitely stay tuned for all of Colin's goings on about town. Um, his website is colinbevan.com. And of course, that and every other thing we reference will be in the episode notes. Um, oh, I will note. I I don't know what to tell you guys. The audio in America is just different. I, we recorded this in Brooklyn, and anytime we were in this in cities, it wasn't obvious noise interference. Like it wasn't cars honking outside or something. It was just really weird digital interference going on. And I did my best to salvage the audio and make it loud. I mean, it's not it's not terrible, but it's not great. It kind of sounds like we're doing a a Skype interview. So I hope that you'll bear with us and uh, listen to it because we have some great content in it. So yeah, know that I did my best to make the audio nice for you guys. And I have no idea why it's like that. Well, but we've also decided we're going to, we're going to, we're going to make everyone wear headphones from now on so that no one ever realizes that they're getting far away from the microphone. Hopefully that'll that'll help so that's an upcoming purchase and uh yeah take that uh we didn't have an episode last week i posted on instagram because our cfo pepperwood died suddenly uh, he rest in peace she she rest in peace um, yeah that was crazy it was it was indeed crazy and without further ado Colin Bevan. Occasionally interesting. Occasionally interesting. They are occasionally interesting. Okay, I'm, I'm very curious about the difference in reaction to uh, How to Be Alive versus No Impact Man since How to Be Alive is so much less, um, I don't know, d- divisive or extreme or anything like that. And I felt like so much of the initial reaction to No Impact Man was all people just commenting on the extremeness of it. No Impact Man was actually designed by me to not be divisive. Because at first, when I decided that I wanted to write about climate change, I thought I was going to write about change mm-hmm. and then i decided that the way to discuss it was by writing about me changing and i thought if i wrote about me changing then what would there be to argue about and i wasn't telling anybody else <laughs> what to do but it turned out that there was a lot to argue about um as a matter of fact one of the things that got argued about was even environmentalists attacked me for no impact man um and um <clears throat> that was because they felt i was distracting from the way climate change should actually be communicated about. But now there was just actually an article in the New York Times yesterday that shows that the research shows that the way to talk about climate change is to relate it to people's lives um, on an individual level. You can feel that. Um, How to Be Alive, I mean, we should say for your listeners, No Impact Man is about a year I spent living as environmentally as possible here in New York City. And it happened about... <clears throat> 10 years ago, really, um, was the year that I, I lived that life. Um, and there was a book and a film both by the title No Impact Man. And then the succeeding book is How to Be Alive. How to Be Alive um, is kind of um, 
it's kind of an answer to the questions that I got from people after No Impact Man, what people wanted to know, what can I do, what can I do? People were really looking for instructions. People wanted to uh, feel as though they were living prosperous but meaningful lives and addressing themselves to problems in the world. They were looking for a kind of connect the dots kind of answer. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. The thing about it is, is that the world is falling apart because of people following directions. Um, and if we, what we really need, I believe, is for people to be awake to themselves. And being awake to themselves, they can feel, they can actually feel, you know, the sorrow that they have when they see injustice, environmental injustice, social injustice. <clears throat> and being awake to themselves, they can also access their talents and their passions and direct them towards those concerns. So how to be alive is about that. It's about how do, how do, how do we wake ourselves up and figure out who we are in relation to the world and then live lives where we take into account where the world is at instead of just living lives according to the um, standard life approaches that have been handed to us and the, the difference in reaction. Uh, it's been gentler how to be alive. It's, you know, I get emails. It hasn't been as large as No Impact Man, um, but I get emails all the time from people that are just saying, like, has really changed their lives and helped them. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. What do you think? What was the approach to the environmentalists criticizing uh, No Impact Man, and how did that shape the criticism? You mean why were the environmentalists uh, criticizing your approach? Because, well, so No Impact Man is about. Uh, given that the things that I use and the ways that I transport myself and the things that I eat contribute to environmental environmental degradation in the world, um, this consumer society, the way that we live, and then how is it possible to live in a way that actually contributes to the regeneration of the world as opposed to taking it apart? And what the environmentalists didn't like was that <clears throat> they, they felt as though... Um, you know, No Impact Man got a lot of attention, a lot of press attention, more press attention. Um, so, for example, one time I um, I was giving a talk about environmental communication, and just for fun, I Googled No Impact Man, and I Googled the UN Conference on Climate Change, and No Impact Man got more hits. And the point was, you're failing if that happens. Like, the, the UN Conference on Climate Change should be getting a lot of hits, but so, but what was happening is there was a failure of communication by the environmentalists. And so the environmentalists wanted the press to be talking about how we needed regulatory change in this country. At that time, uh, cap and trade was the big, big thing to, to cap the amount of carbon allowed to be put into the atmosphere and then trade car what they called carbon, trade the right to put um, carbon into the atmosphere or carbon tax. And so they, the environmentalists wanted the press to be talking about big regulatory change. And um, instead, at that particular time, the press was talking about no impact man, about individual change. And this worried the environmentalists because how are we going to get the big change that we need, change in industry and that kind of thing. But the point really was that there was no political support for big regulatory change. And No Impact Man was designed to actually to begin to get people engaged in the environmental dilemmas and to begin to cause uh, political support for the big. So, so um, it's it's 
you 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 get people engaged in the politics by getting them to change things on a personal level, which is just like think about mothers against drunk driving. You know, who's involved in mothers against drunk driving? It's mothers whose children have either been killed or had near misses, right? They they have skin in the game, personal skin in the game. So the idea with No Impact Man was to get people to have personal skin in the game, and then they would move on and get involved in environmental organizations. In fact, uh, studies uh, just come out. Um, the New York Times just published an article about a study that actually says that the way to get political support for big change in, in environmental regulation is um, to first get them involved in their own lives. Yeah, I mean, that seems like what kind of politician isn't is going to vote for something that could potentially lose the money or be have opposition if their constituents are apathetic towards it. I mean, one of the things that we've been talking about a lot recently is top-down change versus bottom-up change and and the effectiveness of both. I mean, I think we probably need both, but it seems a lot more equitable use of time to focus on individual change and and through example showing those around you that there's better ways to go about things and then that makes people more passionate about these things and then then they're more willing to call their senator when they see something going wrong. I think the problem is when we call it personal uh, top down versus bottom up the whole problem is in the word versus Mm. you know that we have we could have we could call it societal change which is regulatory you know regulatory change and cultural change right so so for example if you look at gay marriage or marriage equality and you look how that came to pass in this country what happened what happened was um at first uh domestic partnerships were recognized in san francisco so what happened was culturally the culture supported um, same-sex domestic partnerships. And the reason for that was is because there were a lot of same-sex domestic partnerships. So in other words, individual action, which was which, which meant having a same-sex domestic partnership, right, um, was happening a lot. So that changed the culture around same-sex domestic partnership. And then in turn, the politicians followed the culture and made regulatory change or societal change. Once they did that, then, then um, it followed and it spread. That caused more cultural change. Changed people, changed more people's minds. Changed the way more people live. And then the state of California itself adopted, uh, 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 recognized uh, domestic partnerships. Then, then that changed the culture some more. And eventually, uh, the state of California recognized gay marriage itself, not just domestic partnerships. So, so when people ask me what's more important, cultural change, cultural change is what I is the word that I use for the uh, uh, the sum total of much individual change. Which more important, cultural change or societal change? Societal change is regulatory change. So, what's more important, changing the laws or changing the people? I say like. Well, what's more important when you walk, your right leg or your left leg? Because they're the same. We take one, one takes one step, and then that allows another to take the other step, et cetera, et cetera. That's a very good analogy. Um, I want to say a million things at once. Um, I know you're a huge fan of Richard Bach and that he's influenced your life. And uh, one of my, or my biggest favorite quote in my whole life is the, I had to swim through my life like a baleen whale, taking in great flooding seawater mouthfuls of what other people wrote and thought and said, tasting and keeping bits of knowing the size of planktons that fit what I wanted to believe. And uh, I think of you as just all the planktons that that I, I 
met you and learned about you at this perfect time in my life that felt so destined and amazing that I was on this somewhat of a path. I mean, I've been an environmentalist since a very young age, um, and I believed in individual action slash cultural change and that the best way to make change was from a positive, optimistic perspective, even though all the feedback I was getting from everyone around me was that I was wrong on both these counts, that I was just one person and a very young person, and therefore I could never make any difference. And I was just too young and naive to that I, that I was so delusional to still believe that. And once I got older, I would see how false that was. And also that the problems of the environment and our society are so large and terrible that to try to focus on the positive side of things is, again, naive and isn't going to get you anywhere. And then I learned about you and I was like, oh, just this amazing thing to, to that you were you were this example of everything I believed in and wanted to be and uh, have since you know taken that and uh, I feel like run with it uh, and everybody thinks of me as the person who's all about individual action of like change change yourself first and that opens all the doors and absolutely this thing of all of these changes or all of these um, ideals or ways that I live by have never felt, you know, like a sacrifice, even though that's what people may think that I am consistently so much happier than my neighbor who's not caring about what the food they're eating or taking the stairs or just questioning things, questioning the box and the societal mold and, uh, yeah, so I, I I want to say those stories and profoundly thank you for the impact that you've had on me. No impact, man, your, your big impact on uh, so many people all around the world who have been let, shown an example and, and given permission to step into this place of optimism and taking personal control. So good job. <laughs> I don't really have a question. I just wanted to tell Thanks. you. It's good because good I don't really have you. an answer to that. <laughs> Where do you think, I mean, we live in a pretty individualized society. Where do you think this like pervasive attitude that individual change is meaningless comes from? Doesn't that seem sort of contradictory? Well, it actually has, I think that it has to do with the, um, the environmental agenda is mostly a progressive or a liberal agenda and um individual action individualism is a conservative um uh, philosophy in this country so when you talk about individual action um towards environmentalism you're actually crossing your you're kind of crossing paradigms you're you're mixing a conservative and a liberal philosophy so it's interesting because in addition to getting criticism from the environmentalists i also got a lot of positive um, mail from uh, Christian conservatives, lots of email from Christian conservatives. And they said, you know, you think you're crazy. I don't believe in climate change, but if there was climate change, I really like your approach. Um, and so um, uh, what do they say? Uh, conservatives love individuals, but hate society and liberals love society, but hate individuals or something like that. So, so, so the even though you know we in the United States are considered to be individualistic, the people who were 
trying to push forward the environment for change or not necessarily individualistic, but collectivistic. And the real question always, you know, becomes that whether we should knee-jerk to one response or the other, or whether, you know, we need to find a way to synthesize those ideas of collectivism and individualism. Um, and it seems like that's always where the solution lies, is where those two intersect is usually more right than a lot of the other solutions. Yeah, so... It's to me, it's of particular interest because I teach um, Zen Buddhism, and you know, an important important part of Buddhist philosophy is, is not two, you know, not separate. And so the idea that collectivism and individualism are even opposite strategies is anathema in, in Buddhist thought. I think a really good example you give of this in How to Be Alive is uh, your friend who started the composting in New York City parks mm-hmm. and uh, just built up so much momentum, even though it wasn't technically allowed or sanctioned by any official thing that the momentum became so great that then basically the park system had no choice but to adopt it and kind of, uh, you know, make it their own. And that type of stuff is happening all the time. And it's awesome. She's my friend Kate Zidar. And- one of um, one of my heroes, and she had been working in environmentalism in New York City before No Impact Man started. She's younger than me, but um, she um, and when I started doing the No Impact Man project, I kind of followed her around, and she taught me a lot of stuff. But she, um, one of her projects was keeping a compost pile in McCarran Park in in uh, Williamsburg here in Brooklyn, New York, and. Um, what she did was she wanted the reason why she kept a compost pile is because she was part of a community garden. And, um, when you do a community garden in New York city, a big concern is the soil, like, because especially over there, um, there are a lot of incinerators. And so there's, um, heavy metal fallout from the air and into the soil. And, um, so how do you make the soil healthy? And so Kate wanted compost for the soil She's also a biochemist at heart, so she's really interested in soil microorganisms. So she was just really, in her own way, geeking out, right? So, so she started. She got these big plastic barrels, and then she put them in the middle of McCarran Park, and she put cinder blocks in the bottom of the plastic barrels, um, so that they would be too heavy for anyone to move. She didn't ask permission from anyone to start this composting project she did write a letter to the mayor saying you know i'm going to start this compost project but she didn't write for a letter she didn't wait for a letter to come back from the mayor she just carried around this letter that she wrote and if anybody asked her what she was doing she said nice. look the mayor said it's fine <laughs> but it was just her letter to the mayor that she showed like style. yeah and so and so she started this community composting project where families from um, around the neighborhood would come and bring their food scraps and it was a vermicomposting pile meaning that there were worms in there that helps turn the compost um, uh, faster and eventually it became a community project where like lots of people were you know attending to the compost pile it wasn't just her well you'd say you could say well what's the point of that that's never going to change anything it's just you know 50 families composting who cares but the thing about it is is that it turns out that there were other composting geeks around the city who were doing similar things and also starting composting projects in the same way that kate was and because uh what what happened was that there were so many composting projects around the city that 
the Department of Sanitation started to get worried because they worried about rats being attracted one thing or another. So eventually the city itself decided to adopt, you know, here in Park Slope, for example, where I live, there is curbside composting. Um, and the city decided to, it was because of all these little community projects that the city actually decided to do it. So we're, what we're talking about is this individual change leading to collective change, right? Yeah, that's so awesome. Totally awesome. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's, she's totally a hero. Um, one of the main tenets uh, that you teach in How to Be Alive is the give energy to what is true for you and don't give energy to what is not true for you. And, uh, and yeah, that sounds like such an obvious and easy concept, but once you start thinking about it, it's like, wow, how much energy we give to the things that aren't true for us. And, um, you know, I think even kind of the style of being an environmentalist of focusing on all of the things that are wrong is giving energy to what's not true for us. And uh, I guess just what are your, what are your practices for how you keep yourself on the path of only giving energy to what is true for you? Yeah, that that saying, I think I call it the university universal theory for the good life, or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's um, it's um, give energy, give more energy to that which is true for you. Give less energy to that which is not true for you. And that. That saying kind of comes from a friend of mine named Rabbi Steve Greenberg, who's also featured in How to Be Alive. He said, "The wise, he told me a quote. I think it goes, the wise man, the, the wise man, um, uh, 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 the wise man gives uh, effort to the good, not to the bad, something like that." And um, so that idea of giving more energy to what's true and less energy to what's not true, and true in that, in in, in the way that I've written it is with a capital T. So, um, is, is ultimately actually, um, the, it's the embodiment of nonviolence. So Leo, Leo Tolstoy, who, um, everybody thinks of him as, you know, having written Anna Karenina and other novels, but also in the latter part of his life, he had a nervous breakdown and came out of the nervous breakdown as, a, um, an anarchist Christian. And he believed that the entirety of Christian, uh, of Christ's teaching could be summed up in the words, resist not evil, resist not evil. And that's, um, that's the roots of nonviolence. Like the idea is not to fight that which is bad, but to build that which is good. So this idea, give, um, give more energy to what's true for you and give less energy for what's not true for you. The idea is not to fight anything. But just to build what makes you happy, what makes you feel attendant, what makes you feel alive, what makes you feel as though you have meaning and purpose, and to give each day, give more energy to it. Because so, people, um, and give less energy to what's not true. So, you know, obligations that don't actually do anything, excuse me, do anything for, I always like to burp. <laughs> That's <laughs> um, a good habit. <laughs> um, um give less energy to what makes you unhappy and makes what makes other people unhappy. Right? So because everybody kind of thinks, well, um, that they're locked in their job or they have golden handcuffs, you know, um, and they're looking for some big, critical, gigantic change. Like I'm going to move or I'm going to change my job. And sometimes they can't do that right away. So this idea that you just give more energy to what's true to you, even if it's just a little bit, you know, just be, be kinder if necessary or, 
where oftentimes I tell people who feel stuck, just hold this mantra. How, how may I help? How may I help? How may I help? And if you hold that in your consciousness enough, you know, if you just constantly hold that, make that your mantra and just constantly hold that in your consciousness, you don't have to decide on some great path that you're going to take, but your path will automatically be navigated by that vow. What's that thing you always say? What I was immediately thinking of was uh, do the next right thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's great words to live by. It's sort of like, it's oftentimes not as easy to recognize what the wrong thing is, but it's, you usually know when you're doing something right or like it feels right. And bad habits are easy to ignore until you start to live that way. Like, and it's easy when you take it one step, one day at a time. <laughs> Works if you work it. Well, there are different theories about human behavior. And one theory is that we act as we think, sort of thing. Um, in, in, in my Zen tradition, um, there's, there's this actual idea that action of intuitive action, that is to say that you don't necessarily have to think it out and have a path, but that if you, more or less, if you clear away the thinking, then action arises all by itself. So this is a kind of a plug for meditation practice. It's the idea of all of us attending to that which goes on inside of ourselves so that we can act well in the outside world. Um, this intersection, just as, you know, this one intersection that I'm interested in is this intersection between individual action and societal change. But another intersection that I'm interested in is this intersection between spiritual change and societal change, like individual spiritual work and then the individual's behavior in the world. And um, what's interesting is that um, contemplative prayer, meditation, that type of thing, gives more space for intuitive action so you don't actually there's no actual deciding about what's right and wrong in the but 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 the next right thing arises by itself it's kind of a, it's, it's 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 just in the same way that uh if you build certain kind of muscles you can do certain kind of acts if you do if you practice meditation or contemplative prayer so also this ability to be intuitive in one's action arises too so being spiritual to you means what exactly? I don't know. That's fair. <laughs> I think um, probably uh, uh, it means uh, being a life quester. You know, the term that I use in birth means questing after that, questing after truth. Means being a satragaha, which is Gandhi's words for truth finder or truth seeker. So it's, it's, it's I suppose, to be spiritual maybe... Um, I'm not sure what it means for anybody else. Um, for me, it means holding the big questions instead of pushing them away. It means, you know, not, not this question of uh, what will happen when I die? Where was I before I was born? Why am I really here? What is the purpose of this life? What is this universe? All these big questions, um, which just land us in mystery and um, ambiguity. Um, and uh, what I call sacred agnosticism, which is uh, wholly unknowing, lands us in this place of, of beyond the place where our thinking can actually take us, where our conceptual minds can take us. And, um, and this idea of, of that we don't, you know, that, that, that we, we don't, we can't with our thinking minds um, answer these questions, um, but to cling to the questions all the same and to 
and to allow ourselves to be with not knowing, to be with the mystery of that, which is, I don't know, something like that is my, is, is how I'm spiritual, but I wouldn't venture to say what spirituality means for anybody else. Why do you think people had such a uh, visceral reaction to No Impact Man? I think, um, you know, when Jen was talking earlier about how she was trying to do things in her life and they called her a naive young girl. Um, they said that to you all the time, huh? They said that to me? That I was a naive young girl? <laughs> yeah. I thought you said that's what they said to you. No, I think they, they said I'm, that to I'm, me I'm too. I'm making jokes. <laughs> um, and they, they, that, that because um, people are seeking confirmation bias. Is confirmation. It's called confirmation bias. They're seeking They're seeking. Uh, out things that confirm the choices that they've made. So, for example, if you talk to, to people who are 50 and had children and ask them whether you should have children, they'll all say yes. If you, and if they didn't have children, they'll all say no. <laughs> That's the phenomenon of confirmation bias. It's a psychological defense, basically, against having to re-examine all the old decisions. So, no impact man is just, the, 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 a, a lot of what's happened in this world is that people are told you know you have to work your rear end off and go to college and then go into you know gigantic student debt and then get a mortgage and get some sort of a partnership and then both of the partners are too busy to actually attend the partnership and they're unhappy with each other and they have kids but they don't spend any time with their kids etc cetera, etc cetera. everybody's working their rear ends off and some jackass come like me comes along and says you know you shouldn't be using so much stuff and the way that we do things is all wrong and and you're actually stuck in this miserable life you the, the last thing you want to hear is from a person like me yeah. You know, because you want confirmation bias. You want to be reassured that the choices you make are actually right because you're sacrificing so much for them. And the prospect of changing those choices seems way too large. So um, that's why I think. That seems crazy to me, though. I mean, if I was, you know, working 60, 80 hours a week and wasn't enjoying myself and wasn't being fulfilled from that, and, and, and somebody came along and said, hey, you don't have to do that in order to be happy. I'd at the very least be interested in what they had to propose. I mean, it seems crazy, except that you don't have a mortgage and you're not raising kids. And, you know, you're not living in the same town as your father and your grandfather lived in. And, you know, so, so. I guess that's true. I mean, we, we moved to Thailand and we love it. And we, we've had conversations with our friends back home and they're always like, Oh, you know, I'm oh, so jealous. You guys are really so love lucky. To do that. Well, why aren't you doing it? Well, what about my apartment? What about my cell phone bill? What about my, like, it's just like, you know. You could deal with all of those by the end of the week. No problem. Yeah. Like, we're not, we're not special. <laughs> we just, we just did a thing. We, it wasn't from luck. And it wasn't, certainly wasn't because we had a nice chunk of money saved. It certainly wasn't because we didn't have responsibilities here. Oh, excuse but. me for contradicting you, but I think you are special. I, I, I don't think that the choices you've made are easy for everybody to make and that, it uh, you know and i think i honestly honestly if you if you if you i understand the impulse behind saying i'm not special but if you don't recognize your own specialness and it's hard to help other people to have it too no i mean i think we're both incredibly special <laughs> in, in so many ways i mean I, I think that the main things are you know basically everything that boils down to being a life quester of continually re-examining the system and asking questions even when we start to go down a certain path and like get entrenched in it and then i think as individuals and then certainly together we're like should do we have blinders on right now like 
are we seeing this full picture? Is this what it seems like? And always trying to check in. Um, we have said to each other and other people about how to be alive that it seems like this incredible convergence of um, what the digital nomads call their Bible, the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss and uh, flourish by Martin Seligman, who's like the founder of positive psychology. Actually, do you quote him in your book? No, okay. I deliberately okay. dropped quotations of him when I found out that he worked with the CIA. <gasps> I didn't know that. In the army. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was going to quote him, but. Well, <laughs> what sort of work did he do for the CIA? Uh, well, it said that, you know, the work that he did around um, uh, learned helplessness and optimism. So he, his, a lot of his work is around building optimism, but the army was interested about how do you actually build learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. And it said that he helped with that. Oh, you reference him in, when you're talking about the dogs in the cage. Oh, I guess I do, do reference him in that one. Part. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. read the book to, to learn more of that enticing story. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that wasn't a reference to learned help. That is, that the yeah. dogs, yeah. Interesting. Well, we were trying to say that as that like a compliment of like this yeah, amazing, yeah, amazing yeah, convergence of worlds of four hour work week being like question the system and live a better life and positive psychology saying and do it from a place of happiness and when you're living in line with your values and your flow states then all good things will come from that and then also having an environmentalist perspective thrown on top of that it's pretty much the perfect book how to be alive is oh thanks (laughs) how to be alive is is in part intended to be in dialogue with the positive psychology movement which is in many ways quite narcissistic you know it's about how do i create a positive feeling state in myself by remembering happy things that i did like gratitude lists or by you know um and uh, yeah but gratitude lists have been almost always focusing on external things like i'm grateful for what this other person did or i'm grateful for these circumstances I'm defending positive psychology. I feel threatened. I, I think positive. I like positive psychology, but I do think that it lacks a service element. That is to say, so is is positive affect actually the point of human existence? Like to feel happy, because we can be materialistic about that too. You know, everybody knows that when you die, your car will be gone and your house will be gone, but so will your happiness. Mm-hmm. You know, this body happiness is is it's an embodied feeling. It's not something that you can take with you. So. So what is the abiding thing? What is the one pure and clear thing? And it's I believe that happiness is an energy um, that's useful and feels good. I, I wouldn't take away anybody's happiness. Research shows that happier people are more of service than other people. But but I don't believe that it's well, it's not the goal of my life. It's it it helps me in my life. I like to feel it. I w- don't shun it. I do th- do things to have it but I don't think it's the goal of my existence. Yeah, no, totally. I don't think you would have uh, chosen this path as much as we're talking about all of the good things that come from living a life in line with your values. It's certainly been a rough go of it for me, and I haven't been anywhere near as much of a public figure as you, but just like on the day-to-day of how much, you know, rejection and like sneering there is yeah so you don't believe that happiness is the goal in your life i mean it's definitely it's definitely one of them but yeah definitely not the only one and there's a lot of choices i will prioritize over happiness i also would go further in the moment that that, that positive psychology doesn't necessarily say that should be i mean 
Positive like, psychology Martin's, avoids the word happiness. His first book was called Happiness, and he rewrote it, realizing that happiness is a momentary state and it doesn't really mean much in, for, in favor of a more sort of well-rounded approach to what positive psychology should be, and like including positive engagement and a whole other slew of elements that make for a flourishing life rather than just a happy life. And so he sort of talks about how the, there is a difference there and happiness shouldn't just be the point because it's, it's fleeting. It's by nature, not something you can live in. That might be debatable, but um, it is depressing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, he almost... If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. You've never heard that expression, like whenever, you know, there's no gurus. That's interesting. Have have you? Re- I just learned from How to Be Alive that you liked Richard Bach. Richard Bach is the is he the author of like Jonathan Livingston Siegel and yeah. Illusions and yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I say that in How to Be Alive. Mm-hmm. Said I don't remember that at all. You spent like whatever, or you had your spiritual quest with Bacardi Rum or something, and then like in the oh. same storyline, then then you spent you read Illusions and then you spend do the next year trying to like explode clouds with your mind clouds or disappear. Something. Yeah. Right. Yeah, um, but so we love Richard Bach, and um, a story that we talk about, especially Trevor, all the time, is um, from one where. It's oh, that's a good book. That's a very romantic book. Such a good book. Um, with and where they travel and and see or find. This oh my God! Truth. You guys are copying him. <laughs> isn't that? Are, are, isn't that what he does? He travels around the world like you too. Yes, with her, with his partner. I mean, honestly, we have uh, <laughs> we we think that we're them. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually funny. a running theory. It's actually yeah, it's a running theory that happens that it comes up often. I feel Leslie, his partner, has directly communed with me. I think it's like my most wooey, wooey, spiritually weird experience of my entire life is how the the weird connection that I feel to them and like. Are and, they still alive? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, and the well, so our next step apparently is to no, no. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are sad about this. (laughs) No, as I said before, the mics were recording. I don't ever necessarily look at the uh, evolution of a relationship as a sad thing, and I think Mm. it's yeah, whatever. (laughs) I think they they were together for almost. 30 years and that they both say they were incredibly happy and expanded with love and their minds and their realms of possibility and their hobbies and everything if i could get if i can get 30 years like that that is a fucking win oh my god that would be amazing even if it ends then i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be you know that's such a net positive that seems so obvious (laughs) And even if it's something to be learned, oh, oh, I was, I was going through my notes um, for this interview earlier today. I can't actually remember what it was that triggered this thought. So maybe I shouldn't go there because it's going to be discombobulated. But now I've gotten too deep. I'll try anyway. Um, it was something along the lines of uh, we've talked about before about um, you know how how extreme growth comes from places of discomfort sometimes, uh, and how and we on a recent podcast interview, we talked about periods of being alone, spurring on all this great growth. And then I said that now in this first like wonderful relationship of my life, that it's been 
a totally different way of growing and growing into positivity and putting energy to what is true and all of this stuff as opposed to learning from those hardships and all of this stuff of like I guess I still think it's important to learn about what you don't want by experiencing those things that you don't want but now for the first time being able to <laughs> learn more and more from what I do want and lean into all of these good things it's it's a way bigger better awesome growth and it feels way better than the miserable kind of growth too <laughs> i don't know okay someone else <laughs> i can't, can't remember any of the points I to get well said <laughs> why did i start talking about richard bach oh it was about the religious text that he finds um but basically in in one and then he was saying uh you can talk you say this story he goes to an alternate reality where he meets the creator of a religious text, and it is ultimate truth with a capital T. Religious yes. text, like um, these are fundamental truths that we should all live by—a moral code, if you will. And he then has a conversation with the writer about once you have these moral truths that you know you might personally feel like are worth defending, then what do you do with that? Do you create a society for which to protect that word and pass it down? And how do you guard how it gets passed down, whether it gets distorted or not? And, and when somebody comes and has an opposing viewpoint, do you defend it? Do you defend it with your life? Do you defend it by killing? And it really asks the question of like, you know, is religion ever feasible in an organized manner and i think more importantly he points out that more often than not those words that you feel like need protecting are only going to resonate with people who already are down that path earlier plankton's quote yeah that understand it inherently within them otherwise you can sit there and say it till you're blue in the face but they'll never really digest it or hear you I think that he makes some very interesting points with those two. And the way that it's written, it's just a fabulous book. Everybody should read it. One, One. by Richard Bach. Is it still in print? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I feel the vast majority of his books are still in print. Yeah. And I think successful. Yeah, he's, he's got him on the podcast. <laughs> That'd be cool. That's, this is funny to learn all these things you don't remember writing. Do you have a favorite book that you've written? I mean, do you like love one more than another? Or are they like, you're not supposed to choose a favorite? Oh, well, I've written four. Two of them are history books. Both of them, even if I say so myself, are really smart and good books and taught, you know, we learned to, especially Operation Jet Burke, which is a real book, taught me how to write. Like, that's. Um, so I and finger points for that. I like that book too, um, and I like No Impact Man. But I guess I'm tired of living in that persona. So um, I can right now how I feel alive is my favorite, and I find it. I even I'm. It's a big book, and I keep going. But I go back into it and find things. And I'm like, that's so, that's such that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, maybe my next book. Let's see. Oh, what's your next book? I'm working on a novel now. Exciting. Well, we'll see. Yeah. That's all you'll say. We'll have to come back when it's out. It's called it's called uh The Time of No Books and No Women. Yeah. It's about a time. Sounds like a very boring life. <laughs> <laughs> no books and no women. Well Those it depends are on, the it's, two best things. Yeah, I know. It's awful, right? Yeah. <laughs> totally. 
Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> well, I look forward to it. <laughs> yes. The dystopian future. No, it's a dystopian past. Uh, <laughs> I'm intrigued. Well, yeah, we'll have to come back on. Yeah, that's an interesting. You say uh, you're tired of being in that persona. It's kind of like, or for as long as I've known you, which was shortly after you became No Impact Man, you never, or you, you certainly always seemed more of the how to be alive person. I, 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 how do you mean? I seem to be the how to be alive person. That you know, well, I think that the 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 persona that was put on you with No Impact Man was largely for people who weren't reading your actual writing, weren't reading the book or the blog. They were just reading other people's opinion pieces about oh, you and, mm-hmm. and then maybe adopting those opinions of your own. But anybody who was ever looking at you and being like, you know, this extremist, this blah, 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 blah. And you were always just like this really chill, calm dude who was like, <laughs> you know, like, let's all just like eat some potatoes together and get along, you know, like it's, it seems like the obvious decision you know, I'm just I'm that makes sense. And- I mean, I think if you read either book, Knowing Back Man or How to Be Alive, you would, um, they're both me. But if you read about either book, then reading about How to Be Alive would be closer to me than Knowing Back Man. Yeah. And what people said about Knowing Back Man. So, what, are, what are, is the persona as you see it of Knowing Back Man? Well, people imagine a certain stridency. Um, which I don't have, actually. <laughs> um, I'm really not a strident person. Um, I'm disciplined, and you know, the No Impact Man project required a, a year of great dis- discipline um, and questioning. Um, but you know, people who didn't read the book, even people who only saw the film and didn't read the book, um, might not understand that actually it's about it's a big investigate a big investigation and question. It's a question about like what brings us purpose and meaning um what resources are you know in, in no impact man i say clearly it's not about not using resources it's about re- using resources effectively that is to say using resources in ways that bring about human health and happiness both for ourselves and for our communities and our planet so you know um individual chicken ovens do not bring about much happiness <laughs> um uh, gigantic SUVs, I believe, bring about much happiness, you know, uh, in relation to the uh, happiness they bring. A park bench, on the other hand, can bring about tremendous happiness with very small amount of use of resources. A laundry machine can bring about a lot of happiness. Um, so the question is, you know, because what's happened, what's happening in the world that we live in is that we're destroying its ability to sustain our own lives. But I always say we're wrecking the place, but we're not having a party doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, here in the United States, at any one time, 27% of people could be diagnosed with um, depression or ma- major anxiety. So um, that if, if that's more than a quarter of the population, you can't say, therefore, that it's a happy country. And that's the rich people, right? Totally. Um, meanwhile, uh, other people are struggling just to get clean drinking water. So, so the real question is, it's not about... It's really the the the, the you know, people came to know Impact Man, the project I do with this idea that it was about deprivation, but it was not actually about deprivation. Actually, it was about abundance. Where the nature of abundance, like where do we find abundance? Yeah, man, and I feel like it's so obvious that the most limited resource that we experience as humans is time, and you were all about cultivating the abundance of time, yes. and sometimes that's luckily 
at the expense of ridiculous resources. Right. I mean, time is our big resource. Yeah. And the question is, what do we use it for? Yeah. And so you can calculate how much time it turn, takes you to earn the money to pay for an SUV or an extra bedroom on your, on your house. And the question is, does the time it takes you to earn the money and pay for that um, if you could take the same amount of time and just spend it with your kids or your family or your loved ones or your brother or your sister or somebody else that you love, which will actually bring you more happiness, the time it took you to make the money for the big car or the time or that time you spent in community and friendship. Behavioral economics is called maximizing utils an element. In, uh, I like that word. Happiness, yeah. It's maximizing action. Utils. Utils. It's an imaginary happiness okay what is the most unrealistic thing you believe in the most unrealistic thing i believe in that's a good question except that i don't huh. it's hard because if i believed in it i wouldn't think it was unrealistic <laughs> so i'm not sure <laughs> um What do you think is the most unrealistic thing I believe in? I mean, probably pretty aligned with, with mine, that <laughs> ultimately people are good and, and that they just haven't been exposed to the right information or examples yet, and uh, that if they were given those, then they would ultimately make the right choices. And see, I don't consider that to be unrealistic. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of people would, so. Yeah, but the science, actually, so there's the whole science out of the, did, did you go to Rochester? Uh, Ithaca. You went to Ithaca. Yeah, so so university I in the University of Rochester there are these guys, Ed Detchy and Michael Ryan, who founded what's called the self determination theory, which is actually the scientific codification of the of human psychology. And that they've been able to show experimentally, like it's not a belief or it's it's you know, actually that people are motivated by three things. One is um, autonomy, the ability to have the feeling that you're acting out of your own will, that you know, you're 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 being more self-determined um, effectiveness that what you do, you actually have some agency over what's happening. Your challenges are not trivial, but they're not insurmountable. They're optimal. So they, they're hard, but they make you feel as though you're accomplishing something. That's effectiveness. And then relatedness. Relatedness is to be able to be yourself effectively in relation to your community. So it's what you said, right? It's like it's, it's us becoming ourselves in service of the world and to believe that that's what people are for science actually shows now that can be perverted you know if you stick somebody in a war zone or you sexually abuse them or you beat them when they're children or you make them grow up with alcoholic parents then their behaviors may be perverted but all things being equal those are the ways that they're going to act they're going to act towards their growth in ways that are of service to their communities if there was one behavior or action you could get everyone in the world to do or stop doing what would it be i mean the, the environmental thing to say is be a vegetarian um, that's the that to me that's the easiest um, that would solve a lot of problems. What is the most annoying thing about people? The most annoying thing about people uh, when they stand you up. Hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is stand like you up, or when they're not like a thing more than in five travel minutes society. Late. Oh well, that's certainly a thing. Yeah, well, that is but... where you live here. Yeah, man. So, so that's my answer of the day, just because that happens to irritate me. <laughs> what? Jen is chronically late. 
I am oh. chronically late, but I never stand anybody up. I'm I'm very I'm the opposite of flaky. I'm just a little bit optimistic in every category and convinced that I can finish everything I've ever started in 20 minutes. That's what people. That's what they say about people that are late. They, yeah. they just think they can get everything done in a short amount of time. Very true with me. I mean, I'm delusional, but I'm I'm, I'm very optimistic. But very optimistic. <laughs> Balance one another out nicely. <laughs> yes. Uh, what is your least favorite thing about being a parent? I love being a parent. I mean, there's nothing more important to me than Isabella, my 14-year-old daughter, and I love spending time with her, and I love talking to her, and I love being her guardian, and I love teaching her. I love all of it, but um, there are trade-offs to being a parent. You know, She lives with me half the time, so that's every Monday and Tuesday night and every other Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night, and like for example, no impact man. No impact man came out. It got massive attention, and I could have just couch searched my way around the world, um, which would have been fun to me. So, um, it's not. It's. It's. I like I say, I adore Bella, and there's nothing more important to me. But I'm aware of the losses that come with it. Yeah, and maybe that's healthy. Maybe that will make it easier for me. Like when she goes to college, maybe that will allow me to allow her to separate when she wants to separate. Yeah, I think you'll be good at it. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it'll be sad, but I think. Yeah, but I hope, I mean, I hope even when she, we don't live together, I hope that we'll stay connected in, in a real way for our whole lives. We'll see. Unfortunately, I'm not the only one that gets you, so. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and our connection is currently in peril because I'm not allowing her to get a belly button piercing and she hates me. So I got my belly button pierced when I was fourteen. Yeah, well. <laughs> What's your objection? My dad. You live halfway across the world from your parents. So. Yeah, but that's new. <laughs> my dad. Was, my dad was some, was somewhat against. Or, I mean, like he no, he was supportive. He took me to get it, but he was definitely like, uh, he didn't really want to like look at it ever, and maybe until I. I mean, I don't think he's ever wanted to look at it, but I feel like. I, I, I'm definitely on Bella's side here. I think it's this. I think it's this thing. It's like my only major like rebellion, and it, I I love it. Like I'm such a. You still have it? Yeah. I like belly button I just persons. It yesterday. I've had it. I've had it for more than half my life now. I, I I personally I like them, and I'm glad for Bella to have one sooner or later. Um, but I want her to start being a little bit more introspective about the choices that she makes in her life. So. Until I can perceive introspection about certain decisions as opposed to impulsiveness. I did have to campaign for, I started campaigning when I was 12 Mm -hmm. and I wasn't allowed to get it until I was 14. Okay, so so she's only been campaigning for about a month. Oh, okay. So I've got two years to go. Fair enough. Also in Pennsylvania, they wouldn't let you get it even with parental consent until you were 16. So I went to Colorado. (laughs) No, don't do that one. What is the book that has most influenced your life? (laughs) What is the book that's most influenced me? Like, uh, influenced, not your favorite. Uh, what is the book that's most influenced my life? I don't know. There's a book called The Golden Gate by Vikram Seth, which was about this. And I was an engineer at a certain stage in my life, and it was about an engineer, and it was about his emotional falling out. That That's one book. Um, um, a lot of Buddhist books. Um, uh, certain Christian books, too. Um, you know, 
have, but but I don't think there's a one a one look in particular. That's fair. What is the most environmentally friendly thing you do, and or the main environmentally friendly thing you want others to do? I think I I think again that would be vegetarianism. What's the most environmentally friendly thing you do? Is it vegetarian? I th- I mean I suspect so. That's probably of all my behaviors. I mean I ride my I ride my bike and walk and um you know all the kind of stuff. But I think probably vegetarianism is the most important. I wanna I wanna uh, can we go like two minutes over? Yeah. Okay. I want your personal advice. We uh recently got engaged and we're planning. You're engaged. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, but we're planning this wedding and I really wanted, uh, to have a vegetarian meal. And then when, it, when Trevor wasn't with me, when I was alone, my mother attacked me and <laughs> she's going to listen to this. She, she had a Mom. very stern <laughs> talking with me about how rude of me it was to want to force a vegetarian menu upon our guests. And we're... I'm not a vegetarian at this stage in my life. I've been a vegetarian for the majority of my life, and now I eat a couple servings of meat per month. Um, but honestly, I could stop. I feel like it's more obligation because my doctors are always telling me to because I have very low blood pressure. Um, but uh, I'm, okay, I won't get into those details. But anyway, my mom was like, "It's it's so it's rude of you. Your your wedding is not the time to force your environmental agenda on all of your family and friends." People are going to feel gypped. They're going to feel angry. Like they're putting out money and time. They're coming to travel you. And yeah, it's to like celebrate you, but it should still be about them. They want something out of the deal. And if you don't give them meat, everyone is going to be really angry with you and not happy of even coming to your wedding. And I was, uh, yeah, so I'm very miffed about that. And at the time I was like, okay, fine. I'll like put on one or two things. Um, I'm definitely not allowing red meat, um, but I still feel, I already feel like this is the main thing that I don't want to compromise on. I'm willing to make probably a bunch of other compromises, but food is the number one most important thing for me. And to be feeding, to be promoting 75 people eating meat at my behest feels so terrible, and but I don't know how to fight my mom. And that's usually my, the main reason I I don't my my main environmental action foil is my mother. Because why do you have to fight your mom? Who's who's talking to the caterer? Me, but mom would be she would give me a, a very hard time for a very long time. <laughs> you just don't answer. You just be like, okay, mom, I understand. Sorry, I disappointed you. <laughs> What if, I mean, she, she she knows how to layer on the guilt of being like, it's not just her saying this. She's looking out for our family and friends and, and that, she, you know, they're going to be really mean to us the entire wedding if we don't give them meat. Yeah, that's a scary prospect, Mom. Most of it happens. <laughs> how do you feel about his, his oh, response? Why? <laughs> I want no parts of this. <laughs> That's not fair. I can edit it out if you just don't want my mom to hear what you think. I think you, you should do what you want. I think you can do humanely raised animals and a very small portion of the dish just to... But it's still, it's not about, I mean, I care about animal rights, but for me, vegetarian at this point in my life, it's all about environmentalism and the water impact alone of well, giving... Some, sorry to interrupt you because we're running out of time, but I'll say this, Jen. Like, it's important to be ourselves and to make our choices, but there's but it's not fair for you to insist that your mother agree with your choices. So if you want to, if you choose, this is my view. 
If you want to have a vegetarian meal at your wedding, go for it. But give your, let your mom have the space to d- disagree with you. Let her disagree with you. That's fine. It's okay if she disagrees with you. And and even if she guilt trips you, that's fine too. Just let her I be. I need this reinforcement all the time. Okay, mom. It's- never Don't say I never stood up for you, mom. <laughs> you can have your opinions, but let Jen have the wedding she wants. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a, that's a wonderful compromise. <laughs> I get what I want, and we can have dissenting opinions. <laughs> totally. <laughs> All right. Do you want to do your super awesome closing remarks? I think you should do it this time. <laughs> All right. Today on Occasionally Interesting, we had Colin Bevan, author of No Impact Man, How to Be Alive, uh, history books. What was it? Fingerprints and Jet Operation... Jed, Jed Brick. Um, All of which you'll be able to find at the Amazon link on our top right corner of our website. Go there. On this, in the episode in the episode description, you'll have direct links to all of these books. You should definitely check them out. Um, you can also go to Colin's website, colinbevan.com. And uh, yeah, he's, he's the man. Check him out. It's been a pleasure, and we'd <laughs> like to thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Anything anything I missed plugging that you'd like to plug? No, no it's all good. <laughs> Let her do the vegetarian wedding, Mom. <laughs> I stood up for you. <laughs> Thank you.